Hello and welcome to a time of edification with Caruso Ministry. Get ready to be edified and equipped to edify others. Ready? Let's begin. We have been on a series so far, Discipleship the Bible Way. And today we are on the third track of the series, Discipleship the Bible Way. And one of the key things that we um, tried summarizing on last week was as regards, number one, the idea of balance. The idea of balance. And then number two, to decide what and primarily what to teach as a disciple of people. All right. So the first thing that we saw about balance, okay, is the fact that, let me just look at my notes. Okay, yeah. So the first thing we saw about balance is balance is presenting all of the facts of scripture, all right, with emphasis on where emphasis is placed. And what I tried to explain was the fact that when you study scripture, as a student of scripture, you realize that not everything is emphasized the same way. For example, it doesn't take much to see that um, salvation, for example, is emphasized a whole lot more than money. It doesn't take much to see that salvation is emphasized a whole lot more than marriage, okay? Now, you'd be dishonest to say, oh, because the Bible teaches about everything, then I want to teach about everything with the same measure, or, or better still, I want to teach about everything in the same proportion. No, you can't do that. Rather, you want to teach about everything with the proportion in which they are, they are emphasized in Scripture. Now, that really is what balances, okay? So, you know, and I said, for example, I, I remember I made, I made this particular correction about the fact that i've heard people say jesus talks more about money than he did heaven and hell together now first of all if you are being honest with yourself when you hear that statement it is supposed to alert you somehow or to alarm you because that doesn't sound right the jesus you know couldn't have spoken more about money than heaven and hell combined rather you know what people often are not what people actually mean to say but which unfortunately they just say something else and personally i believe to a very large extent it's a very um um it, it can, I don't want to say very, but it, it's not a very sincere statement because any student of the world will know that just can't be true. All right. What they actually what they should actually be saying is Jesus made more, much more reference to money than even Anela. Why did he do that? He did that because that's something people were familiar with. So Jesus, Jesus didn't necessarily speak about money. He used money in his examples a lot because people use money because like people spend money a lot. And so that's something that people can relate with. Right. So, for example, when Jesus speaks about the man who buys the field and um, found a jewel in it, no, the man who found found a jewel in a field and then because of that he buries back the jewel, sells all that he has, and then buys that land. In that particular scenario, Jesus wasn't speaking about money. Jesus was just speaking about, and then at the end of the day, he explains that the jewel is actually the kingdom of God. All right. So now in that particular scenario, Jesus isn't talking about money. He is only using money to explain as an example of a particular concept because it is what people can relate to. All right. So that's that. Um, so I just so I did that to just explain the fact that as a as a minister of scripture, you must also not just um not just understand what is taught in scripture, you must understand to what extent some things are thoughts. And I remember I said this when I thought about money. <clears throat> I remember I said that, you see, as a minister of the gospel, there are subtle, there are subtle hints that you make that you do not even, you, you have to pay attention to even the kind of testimonies you share. You, you must realize it, all right? There are certain testimonies that must be more than some other testimonies, even if they are happening. Do you understand? Now, you, you, you must know people's tendencies. Let me give you a very good example. If every Sunday in church, the testimony shared the most is about money. 
you will not realize it, but the average person's mindset in that place will be configured to always think money when they think it's supernatural. Do you understand? Now, this is not to say you don't share testimonies about those things, but if you if you're going to share testimonies about money, as much as possible, you want to do your best to ensure that the kind of habits you want to co cultivate among your members is what you're going to share the most. All right. So, for example, even if you're going to share testimonies about money, you want to ensure that as much as possible, testimonies about salvation, testimonies about the miraculous, all right, miraculous, you know, as regards the things of the spirit or so on. And so for testimonies as regards discipleship, sound are much more recurrent, particularly when you already have a generation that is very money driven. Do you understand? You have a generation that is very, see, we have a, an extremely materialistic generation. I was thinking about this yesterday. You know, I shared, I shared about it in the, in the teaching, you know, yesterday. Or how the fact that I was, you know, I was, I was in a boat on my way to the meeting. And then I just, you know, I decided in my heart I was going to preach to wherever, you know, um, drove me to the venue. All right. And I spoke to him and I, re and I realized something. Every time when I meet someone to preach, particularly in Lagos, one of the first things they always say, or one of the most, you know, recurrent things you always hear them say is things like, ah, you know, why will I serve God now? He has not blessed me or something like that. And it makes you realize how extremely materialistic we are as a generation. And the funny thing is these people are not young people. Do you understand? They're not, they not young people, all right? And, and I'm not going to blame them for the materialism. To be honest, if, I'm, if there's anyone I'm going to blame, I'm going to blame those who pastor them. Because, I mean, most people I see will tell you, I used to be in church before. And now that I think about it, actually, almost everybody. <laughs> I used to be in church before. I no longer go to church. And that is because, you know, God has not just been coming through for me. And so I decided to stop. And why did that happen? Because those kind of people have been trained to believe or they've been raised to believe that the proof that you are growing spiritually is that God is meeting your needs. All right? Is that there's food on your table. There's food on your table. And, you know, <laughs> I, I can promise you that even the apostles would laugh at the idea of Christianity that some people post today. Because the things that people are trying to gain today with faith or with their religion are the things that the apostles gladly dropped are the things that the early church gladly dropped. Acts 2, for, for, for example, Bible says they sold all the things they had <laughs> and they dropped them, dropped them at the foot of the, of the apostles. Even before salvation was made available, the man, you know, Zacchaeus, who just by the visitation of Jesus into his house, all right, and, and by him having faith in the fact that this man was of, of a truth, of a prophet and the son of God, Zacchaeus actually decided to sell. He said he was going to, first of all, pay back all that, you know, he had stolen from people and anything that, okay, he said he was going to pay back, in fact, in fourfolds, all that he had stolen from people. Do you understand? And so you begin to wonder, what exactly did those guys have in those days that our folks today do not have? Do you understand? And the writer of Hebrews, in fact, said that by faith, you know, some were ready to lay down their lives. Some were ready to, you know, receive the stealing of their goods and so on and so forth by faith. But our, our own edition of faith today actually has to do with supernatural preservation. And now that's not bad, but that's not all there is. If we, if we push an ideology of supernatural preservation that is devoid of the fact that believers can actually die for the gospel, then we are wrong. We are very wrong. Supernatural preservation is, is true and is very correct, but it doesn't negate the fact that believers can die for the gospel. And it doesn't mean those who die for the gospel are not, are not scripturally sound. Stephen died for the gospel. Yet, um, John the Beloved was supernaturally rescued from the burning oil. 
and both of them coexist in the Bible faith. James died. The, the, um, James, the brother of Jesus, died. One of the apostles died. Yet, Peter was supernaturally rescued from prison. At the end of the day, they were both scripturally sound. At the end of the day, they were both apostles in Christ Jesus. But that's just the reality. So you must not have one that negates the other. No, you mustn't. And that's the reason you must stick to the entirety of scriptures with the emphasis, the emphasis is placed on, on one. And so that's one of the ideas of balance. Now, the second idea of balance, and I spoke about it. I said, you see, there are two types of balance. We have static and dynamic balance, all right? And I spoke about the fact that oftentimes because there is already a skill in a particular generation, by skill, I mean S-K-E-W, because there is already a skill in people's ideologies in certain generations, the minister of the gospel has the responsibility to take a hard cut to the other side. So say, for example, as I said, we have a generation that is largely materialistic. Let me tell you something. The average Nigerian, eh, the average Nigerian one is thinking about money. And this is beyond from one generation to the other. Young people, old people, so on and so forth. So let me tell you something. Even when you teach on money, your first responsibility, you see, is to teach on contentment. Actually, before you begin even to teach on social provision, let me tell you why. Because the average person with the kind of mindset they already have, all right, the fact that the average person is materialistic, chances are, even when they receive Jesus, they are expecting Jesus to give them money. Because that is how they are wired, even whether they do it intentionally or unintentionally. Because that's how they are wired to think. The average person today is wired, at least, the average Nigerian today is wired to expect money for anything. Have you ever had an encounter like that in public where you needed somebody's help? And they just have to tie it to money. And sometimes it just gets so annoying. Sometimes people are doing their, their, their jobs and they still want you to give, they, they still want you to give them money for it. For example, maybe you meet someone, you know, at the restaurant door, stuff like that. And I mean, by all means, if you can afford to tip them, you should. But you know, it becomes abnormal when you are doing your job, you are being paid for what you are doing, and then you are literally hounding me to give you money. It's not normal. It's actually not. Now, it's okay to, you know, to be giving a tip, you know, and that's, and that's just all right. But when you begin to hound people for money after you have been paid, it's not normal. But that's the thing. Some of you don't even realize it's not normal because you're just like, ah, well, that's what it is. You know, that's, that's, that's all it is, you know. And so, as I was saying, I said, the average person being materialistic will largely see faith as a means to gain. That's just how, that's just how we are. And so, as a minister of the gospel, you emphasizing balance for those kinds of persons is not you now restating in their mind the ideology that, you know, there is actually supernatural prosperity and stuff like that. No. The first thing you want to do is to, first of all, break down those ideologies in their mind and teach contentment. So, for, 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 a church, for, for people who are already largely materialistic, the first point of call when it comes to money from scripture is contentment. You have to drive in contentment very well. Then when you've driven in contentment to the point where, oh, they recognize the fact that in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter whether I'm rich or I'm poor. What matters the most is surpassing riches in Christ. What matters the most is that I am redeemed by the blood of Christ, not by corruptible things like silver or gold. Then after the, you've been able to drive that into their minds well, where whether I have or I don't have, I am content. Mm -hmm. After then, you can now begin to teach on the supernatural. You know, you can begin to teach on supernatural um, favor, on how that there can be the miraculous working in your finances and so on and so forth. So that, because if you go and teach a generation that is already materialistic, and you are now immediately teaching them on supernatural prosperity and stuff like that, chances are they would do that thing just in a bid to help that materialistic mindset they already have. 
So, as the minister of the gospel, you, too, you so that's why you cannot just afford to just carry Bible facts and throw it in people's heads. You're not going to help them. If, for example, let, let me give you another very good example. If you have a believer who is struggling with sin, right? The person is struggling with sin. And let's even say this person doesn't even understand the gospel of Christ and is struggling with sin. Trust me, that's not the best time to go and be emphasizing you are saved by grace. Mm -mm. That's actually the time to emphasize the believer's responsibility. Now, you don't have to teach, you don't have to not teach one thing, but you just have to emphasize the other. So, on one breath, I can, because I mean, I have to teach you salvation, I can teach you, I'll teach you, of course, that you are saved by grace through faith. But my emphasis the most will be on the responsibility of the believer. Because there is something I want to drive out of you. That's it. So you need, you need to understand. So at the end of the day, we have two things when it comes to balance. Number one, presenting all of the Bible facts with emphasis on the things that scripture puts emphasis on. But then number two, there is now the balance that you have to give as a minister of the gospel, specifically to those that you are teaching, where you say, okay, I see, I see this, I see this, I see that. There are certain things I want to correct, or there are certain things I want to change, or there are certain things I want to make better. And because of that, I now make certain emphasis on certain matters in order for you to become better. This is why the minister of the gospel is actually a, you are a teacher, you are a trainer. Because there is something, I remember I've been speaking about vision since, there is something, it's, you're, not, you're not just teaching anyhow. You're not just doing it because well, we have to do it. You have a goal in mind. You are constantly watching your people, seeing the things that they need to get better as the things they are good at, the things that they are not so good at, and how they can get better. You know, one of the things that you must be able to have as a minister of the gospel is you must be able to have a mental image of where every single one of your disciples is. And when I say is, you must be able to have an idea of the things that they are doing very well, the things they are doing not so well, and the things that they can do better at. You, you must be able to, I mean, I can, I can easily run down through, easily run down through every single person and tell you, okay, this and this and this, this and this and this. This is what this person, particular person is good at. This is what this person actually needs to do a bit more and so on and so forth. You must have that. And so at every point in time, your teaching is tailored towards something. This is actually what separates a Bible teacher from just one who just knows the Bible. It's actually what separates because you must reckon that the teaching of the word is to an end, is to a goal. There is a goal in mind when you teach the word. All right. So that's by the way. And then I said that um, when it comes to teaching the word, there are three things primarily that inform your decisions. Number one is, of course, that there's an entire council of the word. Paul speaks about an entire council of the word in Acts chapter 20, from verse 26 to 27. He says there's an entire council of the word that must be taught. Okay. That's number one. So the first thing is you must have a schedule for what you plan to teach. All right, an holistic schedule. Oh, these are all the topics I'm going to be teaching in this while. Um, this is what I'm going to teach every year. I believe there are certain topics that a minister of the gospel must teach to his guys every year. For example, you must teach salvation every year. You must teach prayer every year. In fact, in my own opinion, you must teach prayer as constantly as possible. All right, salvation, you must teach prayer. All right, you must teach the gifts of the Spirit. Um, in a generation like this that is very money-driven, you must teach on money. But based on the kind of um, the kind of congregation you have, right? For example, most of our audience are largely young folks, all right. So you must teach on relationships every year. Do you understand? You you just have to, all right. So you must teach also on the leading of the spirit. So now, of course, I'm already listening. Some of you are already wondering if we have to teach on this every year. Then what exactly? Which other time do we have to teach other things? So you have to now decide by yourself. Okay, what I think I'm going to teach every year. What I think I'm going to teach every two years. Do you understand? What are the um, 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 special in that sense 
charges I'm going to give at certain points. Okay, you have to decide those things by yourself. Okay, so those are the things that discipleship entails. All right. Now, aside that, there is now also teaching by observation. Now, there are certain things that you just observe and say, oh, I have to teach on this. For example, you notice that your guys are not praying as well as they should. Ah, it's time to teach on prayer. Sometimes you just decide, okay, you know, in between the series I'm currently teaching, just put one charge on prayer there. You understand? They, they will think that you are coming for part three or part four of the series. And they'll just come there and meet a charge on prayer. And then you charge them up to pray. And then, of course, you have a focus. Maybe you notice they've not been praying as fervently. So now you know the focus is on fervency in prayer. Right? There are some other times where you, or you just need to do an entire series on prayer. Maybe it's been a while since you've talked on it. So, so I have to do an entire series on prayer. You know, some other times it is, you know, you just notice some things and stuff like that. And then you say, you know what? I have to teach about it. A good example, for example, is discipleship the Bible way. Discipleship the Bible way is a teaching that, that was inspired solely by observation. All right. Well, let me explain it this way. Observation in the sense that I sense by the Spirit what that's which, you know, the direction that God will have us go in the coming year. All right. Or at least, you know, around KCM. And I just knew in order to do that effectively. All right. I need to teach on this particular matter. Simple. So I saw that there were a couple of things that needed to be corrected, a couple of things that needed to be taught, a couple of things that needed to be expanded better. And so I decided, you know what? We need to teach this. Do you get me? So even though, so even though it is observation, it is not still devoid of the leading of God's spirit. And that's what I'm going to go to as the third thing. The third thing is you also teach or you decide what to teach by the flow of the spirit. All right. By the flow of the spirit. You know, never forget that Jesus is the chief shepherd. All right. You're a shepherd, but Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's actually the head of the church. He's the owner of the sheep. You are just an overseer. All right. You are a steward. You are not the owner. He gave it over to you to steward. And so you must recognize the fact that he is Lord. And so at the end of the day, no matter what you decide that you, you know, what, what, no matter what you believe you have to teach, no matter what you reckon that you have to, you know, talk about and so on and so forth, his leading is still the most paramount. There are certain times when, you know, you would have planned, you would have planned what to teach and so on and so forth. And the spirit of God would, you know, put you on a particular pedestal, lead you in a particular direction to teach. And that's what you must do. I mean, there are, I mean, I think one of the most dramatic I've had like that is when I taught on tongues by the Spirit and I had a plan to teach and I just was moved to teach on the Trinity that I did not even have a note for. <laughs> and I taught an entire track like that. Do you understand? All right. So that's the thing. You have to pay attention to lead. Some, sometimes you will get the leading before the meeting. Do you understand? As you're preparing your notes, you just have a leading. Oh, teach this instead. All right. Sometimes it's as you are praying. Some other times it's while you are teaching it. If you sense a nudge in your heart while you are teaching to move in a particular direction, just go. Just go there. I mean, for folks who have followed me, you know, followed me for quite a while, you know this, that a lot of times when I'm making a lot of detours in my sermon, by detours, I mean, a lot of times when I'm saying things that don't necessarily align with what I'm teaching, a lot of times there is a specific need that God wants to meet supernaturally. I've seen that testimony happen again and again and again. A lot of times when I notice that I'm teaching something, but I'm always making references to other things. I'm always speaking in that direction. It just means that there's a supernatural emphasis that God wants to make in that direction. Because at the end of the day, that's what supernatural utterance is. Utterance is speaking for the gospel the way it should be said, how it should be said. That's what supernatural utterance is. Do you understand? And I mean, since you prayed for utterance, you might as well expect utterance. Okay? So th those are three things you must learn as minister of the gospel in deciding what to teach. All right? Number one, the entire counsel of the word. Number two, knowing by observation that which you want to communicate to your folks or that which you want them to be better at. And then number three, the leading of God's spirit. Okay, so let's just move on. 
let's move on okay let me just give this admonition i don't know if i gave it last time but and the admonition is this as much as possible always ensure or always try to only correct what you've thought now is a rule that i just had to learn personally I, I i don't correct what i've not thought i don't i don't correct it and it's one of the reasons why i always tell people unless you hear me say something don't take my silence as validation unless i clearly say something that i don't talk against something doesn't mean i accept it it just means number one maybe i feel like i'm not in the place to talk about it or number two i have not thought about it so i cannot make any assertion about it it's simply that do you understand but don't take my silence. <laughs> never take my silence for validation never all right and so as middle of the gospel i believe it's one of the things you must into because one of the things you will learn as you begin to increase in discipleship is people are growing at different pace do you understand so if you want to correct everything that people do wrong you you will make it hard for them do you understand you will make it hard sometimes you need to give people time do you understand and part of giving people time is this is when they make a when they make a mistake you ask yourself honestly have i thought on this thing if i have not ah, then how did i expect the person to know do you understand so that means oh i didn't teach on this or maybe when i thought on it this person was not here yet then what you do is you find the person okay go and listen to this so and so sermon i did here and particularly pay attention to this and this and that all right or better still you know um wait until when you're able to teach it then after you teach it you cannot always make corrections about it or in certain cases there are some particular matters that might be very very important that you have to quickly make the correction but while you make the correction don't just say don't do this do this explain it explain it all right so that's just now it's a rule i always go by all right unless i thought on something i don't correct it actually i don't correct i just unless it is very grievous and then i have to actually quickly make a correction but if not i'll just let you i'll let you go no problem and then when i teach on it i would now make emphasis on that thing so that you can pay attention to it sometimes i'm going to refer you back to that particular material so that you know you know what to do and you make amends all right so that being said let's just move on open your bibles to genesis chapter 12 from verse 1 to 3. genesis 12 from verse 1 to 3. i want to um build a theological foundation for the work of salvation and i know i don't have so much time so i'll just try to you know run through um a a, a particular perspective into the work of salvation that a lot of believers don't pay so much attention to but actually guards to a very large extent discipleship so please pay attention Genesis chapter 12 from verse 1 to 3. <clears throat> this is now the lord said unto abraham is get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that i will show thee and i will make of thee a great nation and i will bless thee and i will make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and i will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curse thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed all right go to genesis 13 genesis 13 14 to 18 genesis 13 14 to 18 now um of course according to first peter 1 from verse 9 to 11 it says um receiving the end of the faith if you receive the end, end of your faith even the salvation of your souls it says of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you it says searching what or what manner of time the spirit of christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of christ and the glory that should follow and so what that means is in the old testament scriptures we actually see the prophets prophesy beforehand concerning the sufferings of christ and the glory following so when we see encounters in the old testament we mustn't just take them 
as just plain encounters, as God just talking to men or men just doing their own. We must see them within the light of the salvific work of Christ and be able to explain them within that context. You know, that's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, from verse 25, he says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expanded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's Luke 24, 27, actually. So Jesus was able to explain about himself, all right, from the words of the from the words of the prophets in the old testament so i, I said of that to just say that in our understanding of the old testament we must have a perspective that is largely inspired by the salvific work of christ all right you must always have that so when you see genesis 12 for example now this is not to say that everything in the old testament is referring to christ but this is to say always have a perspective beforehand of Christ and his finished works as you study the Old Testament. And this will, what will largely help you to do that is to have a very strong understanding of the epistles. Why so? Because the epistles are the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? That's, that's what you have. Paul speaks about that in Ephesians 3 from verse 1 to 4, how that the epistles are, the epistles that he writes are revelation of what has been hidden in the Old Testament. Same thing, you see the same thing said in Romans 15 from verse 25 to 26, right? Now to him that is able to, now to him that is able to establish you and then speaks about my gospel, which is the preaching of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the mystery that was hidden from ages, all right? You see the same thing spoken about in Colossians 1, 26 to 27, all right? The mystery across all ages, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, okay? I said all that to just say that, therefore, as we look at, for example, the story of Abraham and the different events that happened to Abraham, don't just be thinking of, you know, God and God and Abraham having a nice time and talking. You must try your best possible to see it within the context of the work of salvation. It then gives your Bible study meaning. All right. So when we see Genesis 12, for example, and we see, you know, the Lord said unto Abraham, get out of your country, go to a place that will show you in this shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All right. You, you, based on our understanding of the epistles, there is a context with which you are going to see this particular portion of scripture. Let's move on, though. Genesis 13, from verse 14 to 18. Genesis 13, 14 to 18. It says, The Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, from him, he says, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward, eastward and westward. He says, For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it unto thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. And if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. He said, Arise, walk through the land. The, in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. You know, as I read this, I just felt it strongly in my heart to say this. You see, there's a, there's a way a man who is in the promise walks. There's a way a man, there, there, there is a sufficiency mindset to a man who is in the promise. You see, a man who, one of the key ways you can know that you are not, um, you are not, confidently walking in God's plan for you is that you are easily agitated. Easily agitated. You are, you, you, you are always, you always are in the fear of missing out. You always think there's one opportunity somewhere that you are not hearing about and so on and so forth. That, you know, that, that was Lot's mistake here. <laughs> you know, so he has a fight with Abraham and then Abraham says, you know what, go. And, and that's the difference between a man who is in the promise and a man who is not. Because Abraham doesn't really care so much about where. Abraham believes wherever he is, he's going to do fine. So Abraham tells him, look around wherever you want. Take it. And when Lot looks around, now that's the thing. 
Lot doesn't care he, because left to him, it's about psychology. It's about understanding the economy, understanding patterns, understanding this and understanding that. So to Lot, he looks around and he looks for the freshest and nicest place. And then he picks a place because it looks good. But that's the thing. There is a way that seems right to a man. But the end of it is destruction. Because Lot did not realize that this place we just picked was going to end up being Sodom and Gomorrah. Exactly. So, you see, let me, let me advise you. And I'm going to teach a bit more about this when I teach on the leading of the spirit. Don't, 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 don't just be all about your, your mind and your intelligence when you make decisions about your life. There is a way to make decisions and the man in the promise. Don't always live your life agitated. What is everybody doing now? Hey, 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 they must not leave me behind. Calm down. Calm down. And so that was the reason the moment Lot went, as he was going. And here's the interesting thing. Even after Lot made that decision and picked the, I can promise you, if Lot saw that it was the greenest part, Abraham also saw it. But yet Abraham saw that it was the greenest part and even in his heart of heart, he had no problem with it. He, he, did, he genuinely did not mind at all. He was okay. If that's where you want, go and take it. There is no problem. Because that's the thing about the man in the promise. Wherever he is, the blessing comes. That's it. Wherever he is, the blessing comes. So as he was going, the Lord said, okay, now look to the left, to the right, to the front, to the back. He says, everywhere your eyes can see, I have taken as an inheritance for you. That's the man in the promise. That's the man in the promise. But that's the thing. Lord thought he was wise. He thought he was intelligent. And so by his intelligence, he walked into his destruction. And guess what? Lot, in fact, Lot went a whole lot better than he left. I hope you realize that it was two times that Abraham rescued Lot. Two times. The first time, right, the king of Sodom was captured. That was the first time when, you know, and he heard that Lot had been captured. And then he ran after Lot with his family members. He ran after Lot with his um, servants. And then he went to fight. And that was the point where, out of the spoils, he gave a tithe. Melchizedek. So that was the first time. And the second time, all right, second time he had to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. And even though at the end of the day, the intercession didn't really work out because there was nobody righteous in that place aside Lot and his family. And look at what happened to Lot. Lot who went with abundance. Don't forget the reason Lot left Abraham was because there was so much sheep, there wasn't enough space. And the same Lot who went with an abundance of sheep, an abundance of children, and so on and so forth. By the time he was leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, he only left with two daughters. He had lost everything. Lost everything. Now, I don't want to expressly, expressly speak about any particular matter, but I want to say as much as possible, don't just take decisions by what seems like the smartest plan. Now, making decisions by the smartest plan is not bad, and that's not the problem. But don't make it solely based on that. There is a way that seems right before a man. You cannot, you see, our senses in the natural are limited. You cannot, you might only know what the immediate effect of a step is. You can never really know what the ripple effect of that step is. You never know. You never know. And so when you believe of the truth that God is Jaira, you understand, he's the providential God. He's the one who sees the end from the beginning. You reckon I can trust him. If he says this is the smartest thing to do, it might not look like the immediately the smartest thing, but at the end of the day, because he knows the end from the, the beginning, he knows how things will play out in my favor. He knows how. All right? So you must reckon that. So don't just be quick to make decisions. Don't be quick to change a career. Ah, what's the paper I'm making money now? Ah, go there. 
<laughs> oh, I'm telling you, you can stay in the same place where people, and that's the thing, you will do the same business where every other person is saying, ah, we don't know what's happening, we're not making any money, and you'll be cutting out big. Some people will think you're probably doing fraud, but you're not. That's the thing. That's what happens when the hand of the Lord is upon a man. That's what happens when you are in line with you and in step with God's plan for you. Just stay with what he told you to do. Stay where he told you to stay. Don't just jump around. Alright? So don't be agitated. Calm down. Calm down. God's plan is enough for you. God's will is enough for you. Stay with it. Alright? Stay with it. So, let's just move on. So, I've read, we've read Genesis 13, 14 to 18. Now, move on to Genesis 15, from verse 1 to 6. And what we are seeing here so far is that we are seeing the promises of God unto Abraham. Alright? We are seeing the promises of God to Abraham. So, Genesis chapter 15, from verse 1 to 6. It says, And after these things, the word of God, or the word of the Lord, came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great word. And Abraham said, Lord God, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto, and he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Verse 6, and he believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Counted to him for righteousness. Now, by the fact that Genesis 15 verse 6 even ends with the fact that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You can begin to tell that this story can't just have been about somebody having children. Because if of the truth, Abraham believed God, and of the truth, his faith was accounted for righteousness. The faith can't have just been that if God promised Abraham that he would have a child, and that was it. There must have been a much more important. Um, there must have been a much more important message that was being communicated by God to Abraham that Abraham would have believed, and it would have actually caused him to be righteous. So that is what we want to interrogate. So now, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter three. Man, time is long gone. Galatians three, from verse eighteen to twenty-nine. Galatians three, eighteen to twenty-nine. He says, for if the inheritance, Galatians 3, 18 to 29. Uh, sorry, I have to rush. Galatians 3, 18 to 29. He says, for if the inheritance be of the Lord, it is no more of promise. He says, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. He says, wherefore then served the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed, all right, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. He says, now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the Lord then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. He says, But the scripture has concluded all on that sin, that by the promise by faith, that the promise by faith of Christ Jesus might be given to them that believe. He says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. All right now let me just explain what you've seen what <clears throat> what has been said so far so he's saying all right that initially the promise now pay attention to what um paul is saying in galatians here paul is telling you that in fact when you see the promises that were made by god unto abraham they are not just promises actually of him having children no 
actually he's telling him that this are this was actually promised as regards salvation through faith in christ jesus why because you see for example him talking about how that in thy in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed or shall all the families of the earth be blessed meaning because of that seed that is going to come out of you every family of the world every nation of the world is going to be blessed now that seed cannot just be isaac because whatever this seed is going to be or is going to do will be one that will affect every nation of the earth. And Isaac didn't do any such thing. Do you understand? Rather, he was speaking in terms beforehand of the fact that Jesus was going to come from the lineage of Abraham. And through the work that Jesus would do, that work would be such that it would affect every nation of the whole world, every family of the entire world, so that in Christ Jesus, all of the nations of the earth is blessed. And that's the reason you have in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever means whosoever, whosoever means whatever family, whatever nation, all right, whosoever believes in him will not perish or should not perish, but have everlasting life. First Timothy 2, 2 from verse 3 to 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. All. So this work was for all men. This work is for all men. And so when you see God speaking to Abraham and saying, In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In fact, the book of Galatians clearly tells us, all right, that this seed was not referring to Isaac, but was actually referring to Christ. All right, let's continue. Right, because of time. So he's saying here that if the promise was made to Abraham before the law was given 430 years after, then the promise cannot come by the law. That's simply what he's saying. He's telling you if the promise of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus was given to Abraham, and do not forget that in Abraham you have actually have both Jews and Gentiles, because the Jews are actually the direct descendants of Jacob. And so in Abraham, you have both Jacob and Esau. So what he is actually saying, ah, oh God, what he's actually telling you here is that the promise was made by faith, all right, to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Paul was an excellent writer. Excellent writer. Because yes, you need to understand, if he started his, if he started the origin of this prophecy from Jacob, he would have secluded the Jews because Jacob is the direct, do you understand, he's the direct father of the Jews. Do you understand? Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and that's the Jews, all right? So if the prophecy had begun from Jacob, it would have been secluded to the Israelites. But because of the fact that the prophecy actually began from Abraham, do you understand? The fact that the prophecy began from Abraham. So this prophecy was in a figure, all right, both to Isaac and to Ishmael. Do you understand that? And even in Isaac, all right, it was to both Jacob and to Esau. So he's telling you that even beforehand, the prophecy of salvation by faith in Christ Jesus was made both to the Jews and the Gentiles. So he's saying if this prophecy or if this promise of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus was made to Jews and Gentiles before the law, then the law which came 430 years after cannot be the basis upon which that work or that promise will actualize. Do you understand? And so what he's trying to do here is just to tell you that of the truth, the law existed. Of the truth, the law came. But the promise was made before the law. And so if the promise was made before the law by faith, because don't forget, how was Abraham made righteous? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So if Abraham was made righteous in a promise by faith, that would mean the law cannot be the basis upon which righteousness will come. That's what Paul was trying to say. So Paul was trying to say, of the truth, the law came. But the law was a schoolmaster. Do you understand? The law was there to keep us until the time when the promise will be fulfilled. But if the promise was already made before the law 
and the promise was received in a shadow by faith, then, then, then the promise will only be received today by faith and not by the law because the promise was made before the law and was received in a promise by faith. Simple. Simple. All right. So let's continue. <clears throat> and so that's why it now says, but after verse 20, verse 24 again. Verse 24, it says, Wherefore the Lord was our schoolmaster to bring us into Christ, that we might be justified by faith. It says, verse 25, But after our faith is come, we are um, no longer under a schoolmaster. It says, For ye all are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So can you see that? It says, After our faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So we are no longer under the law anymore, because faith has come. It now says, Verse 26, for you, all, for you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ are put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither born nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So can you see that? So he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. So the initial seed was actually Christ. But now that everyone who has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. So if you are Christ, then you are now Abraham's seed. So can you now see why God told Abraham that he should look to the stars? He will be able to number it. Because his children would be as innumerable as the stars. His children being as innumerable as the stars is not referring to just Ishmael and Isaac. No. It is referring to everyone who would also by faith receive the promise that was made to Abraham. Salvation through faith in Christ. So the promise was first made to Abraham for him to receive. All right. And so anyone who also by faith receives that salvation through faith in Christ Jesus is actually now a seed of Abraham. Not a seed by natural descent, but rather a seed by supernatural descent, by faith in the message of the gospel. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay. Let me see if I can. Oh, because of time, I won't be able to run through what I want to, <clears throat> what I want to run through. Actually, I don't want to take time. But I'm just going to say this. So what we see, all right, in Abraham, all right, is simple. We see that the promise was made to him before the law all right and so if the and not just was a promise made to him before he received the promise in a, he, of course it's a promise so it had not happened but he received the promise of salvation through faith all right he received it by faith of what was to come and that was why it was accounted to him as righteousness okay but then the law came afterwards so but if the law came afterwards all right it would mean the promise was already established salvation through faith in Christ Jesus had been established before the law came. So the law cannot be the fulfillment, nor can the law be, be the way it is going to come. Rather, salvation would only come by faith. And so because Abraham, who is the father, all right, to whom the promise was made, received that promise by faith, anyone who is also going to receive of the provision of that promise will have to receive of that provision by faith. And once a man receives of that provision by faith, he is now called a son of Abraham. Or a child of Abraham, not because he is born of Abraham by natural descent, not because Abraham is his great grandfather or one of his forefathers, but rather because by faith in Christ Jesus, he has now become a member of a family. He has become a member of a rich heritage, he has become a member of the family of Jesus, of the family of God. He has become a son or a daughter of Abraham. And you see, that's the reason why today we can say we are children of Abraham. We're not children of Abraham because Abraham is a nice man in the Bible and we like to be, you know, affiliated to him. So we call ourselves Abraham's children. No. 
we are children of Abraham because just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, we have believed God today. And there is a righteousness that is revealed in Christ Jesus, separate from the law and the prophets, the righteousness by faith to all them that believe. And we have received that righteousness because we have faith in Christ Jesus. And henceforth, therefore, we are children of Abraham. Hallelujah. So I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a child of promise. I'm a child of Abraham. You know, when Abraham looked to the stars and it was innumerable, I was one of them. I was one of those stars. Hallelujah. I was one. As he looked up into the stars and he saw and he tried to count, you know, and it was impossible to count. As he looked up to the sky, as he looked to, you know, as he looked to the beaches and he saw sands of the seashore and he could not count the number of grains of sand. I was one of those people right there because now I'm an heir of the promise. I'm actually a child of Abraham. Glory to God. So when you think Abraham's blessings are mine, don't just think money. Don't just think cattle. You know, don't just think possessions or children and so on and so forth. No. Think salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a son of righteousness. That's who I am. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. We're sure that it was an amazing time. For questions and inquiries, reach out to us on carysoul.media at gmail.com. We call you blessed.